Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, reading from verse 17. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as also we long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we will pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each, each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this tremendous letter that Paul wrote to this church that he had, uh, that he had kind of sown the seed in his mission to Thessalonica. We thank you that this letter comes right from his heart because uh, he cares for them so much. And we pray that you would help us to learn from it and to base our lives on what you teach us from your word. Forgive us if we're slow to understand it, uh, poor to teach it. Help us to live it in the spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So we're working our way through 1 Thessalonians in the evening sermons uh, here during August. Uh, hopefully, uh, as people come and go through August, each sermon will stand on its own, but that's what we're doing. We're on a series working through uh, this, the five chapters of this letter. And one commentator starts his introduction to the letter 
by writing this sentence. It struck me quite powerfully as I prepared this week. Many first century Christians were persecuted, whether at the hands of zealous Jews like Paul before he became a Christian, angry Greeks or Roman authorities. Persecution for these early Christians included stonings, beatings, crucifixions, torture and death. To be a follower of Christ meant to be willing to give up everything in order to follow him, even life itself. It uh, uh, is, in a sense, mirroring what we've just sung and said, uh, to give all of our lives to God. And it was a very costly thing for them then. The commenter might have added that Paul himself arrived in Thessalonica as a refugee from persecution, having been imprisoned in Philippi, where you recall that he led the jailer, his jailer, uh, to Christ amidst that dramatic earthquake that occurred in the city. And then he was, uh, he was able to leave that city, having been imprisoned before. In Thessalonica, something happened with which we are now very familiar. There was a riot, and we can relate to that very easily. We're told in Acts chapter 17 and verse 5 that some worthless fellows from the streets formed a mob and started a riot. That's the Living Bible paraphrase. Some worthless fellows from the streets formed a mob and started a riot. So there is nothing new under the sun. But of course this riot was caused not by greed or fueled by the curse of misused social networking, but by direct resistance to the preaching of the gospel. It was the preaching of the gospel that caused the riot. Now here in Oxford, we might find it easier at the moment to relate to the chaos of riots rather than the reality of persecution. Certainly, I guess, in our lives as Christians, we can experience from time to time some marginalization in society, perhaps some mockery, perhaps even for some professional disadvantage. We might be excluded from certain social circles because our confidence in Christ offends because people don't want to talk about religion. But troubles of the kind experienced by Paul, and of which he warned the Thessalonians, is some way from our experience, or indeed our expectation, I, exp I think. Anxious then that his beloved little church, perhaps just two years old, maybe three years old, anxious that they might, their faith might have collapsed in the face of troubles, unable, of course, to use his Blackberry, Paul, then based in Corinth, sends Timothy to find out how they were doing. And Timothy brought good news of their endurance, and that news prompted Paul to write this letter. So it's very immediate. It's very much a personal letter to a group of Christian people that he cared for very much. And he had warned them, he had warned them when he preached the gospel to them, that suffering, persecution, perhaps persecution even to death, was inevitable, but, verse 4, he had warned them that it was beneficial, but he still feared for them. Notice that in verse 4, that it is, uh, it is for their good that they were persecuted, uh, that, it will all, that, 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 that God intends to bring some good out of the persecution that they will experience. It is for your advantage 
It's quite hard for us to get our heads around that, isn't it? Now, before I try to apply this chapter to us, I want to remind ourselves, to remind you and to remind myself, that our situation uh, is by no means the same. Our situation here in Oxford, where we experience a, a tiny measure of unpopularity, perhaps, because we're Christians, is by no means the same as many other Christians around the world, for whom the situation in Thessalonica is very much like what they're experiencing today. And we often pray here for the persecuted church, but I took the trouble this week just to look up a couple of websites and to get some help from uh, Matt Clayson, who's uh, our representative here in the church who looks after our concern for the persecuted church. And I thought I'd just pause in the sermon for a moment, slightly different to usual, just to share a little bit so that we can perhaps understand that the situation that Paul is in and that the Thessalonians were in is actually exactly how many of our brothers and sisters around the world are living today. I got this from the website of Release. This is just a few headlines that were on their homepage. Two Christians detained for blasphemy in Pakistan. A spate of attacks against Christians in Sri Lanka. Mass arrests of Christians in Eritrea. Legal threat to Christian activity in Armenia. Churches in Nigeria on high alert as extremists threaten. Three killed in church bombing, one pastor killed. Iranian pastor loses appeal against death sentence. Mob destroys Christian homes in Egypt. Christian school attacked in Indonesia. Guerrilla attacks on Christians in Colombia. Christian persecution in North Korea. Quite a list, isn't it? Christianity, Christian Solidarity Worldwide, CSW homepage says this, brutal torture, total government control and a climate of fear are all hallmarks of countries such as Eritrea, North Korea, Burma, Iran and Cuba. And in all of these places, state control and abuse of religious freedom are the norm. Three particular cases which I got just from the last few days. Malaysia. Islamic authorities unlawfully enter a church and harass guests. On the 3rd of August, a multiracial church was targeted by Islamic officials. The Damansara Utama Methodist Church in the central Selangor state was holding a Thanksgiving dinner for some 120 people when state religious officers, accompanied by several plainclothes policemen, allegedly barged in and took videos and photos of the dinner. They also questioned organizers and seized program sheets. The officers claimed the raid was in response to public complaints, but no details of the actual complaint were provided. This dinner was non-religious in nature, but held to celebrate the work of a non-profit organization which helps women, children, HIV, AIDS sufferers, and victims of natural disasters. Church leaders have urged the Sultan of Selangor to intervene and conduct a thorough investigation of the matter. New Delhi, August the 5th. Four months after a recent convert to Christianity from Islam in East India's West Bengal state was stripped and beaten, about 50 Muslim extremists yesterday disrupted a prayer meeting held in her home, threatening to burn it down if she did not return to Islam. Area Christians said, the extremists warned Selina Bibi of Modigil village in Murshidabad, 
district that if she did not return to Islam, then she must either leave the area or see her house burned down. At her baptism at Believer's Church on March the 29th, a large crowd of Muslim extremists had disrupted the service, said a pastor who was later identified as Bashir. And lastly, one from China, a lady who calls herself Esther. My dear Christian brothers, sisters, and churches, I'm letting you know the harsh circumstances that dedicated Christians are facing in mainland China. My father, Pastor Yang Wan, and my mother, Yang Kashen, are being persecuted like many other Christians and house churches. All we ask for is the freedom to worship and share the gospel. Nowadays, the government reportedly advocates religious free freedom and human rights. Nevertheless, we have encountered many difficulties in, in exercising this very basic civil right. Please do not reserve your sympathy for the Chinese Christians. Please remember them in your prayers and appeal for them. I call upon everyone to fight for religious freedom in China and financially support organizations that advocate religious freedom and human rights. As you consider ways you can help, I ask that you continue to pray for the deliverance of my parents and justice for all imprisoned leaders. Thank you, Esther. It's easy to hear these stories and to turn away, and there is perhaps very little that many of us can do, of course, but we should, as Esther says, we should pray, we should care, and we should advocate for them. Even if our situation is so dramatically different, this letter reminds us that it has often and perhaps always in some parts of the world been thus for Christian people, and probably always will be until the Lord returns, but it is our duty to stand with brothers and sisters in these situations, as Paul, of course, in writing this letter, is seeking to do for the Thessalonians, standing firm with them and asking them to stand firm with him amidst persecution. This week in this country, it seems to me, we have seen what happens in a society when the word of God is rejected, when a spiritual and moral vacuum occurs. Consider, for instance, how the riots illustrate a rejection of all of the Ten Commandments, the idolatry of the mob, the shockingly violent and blasphemous language, the destruction of people's rest and invasion of their peace, the flagrant dishonoring of parents, whether they are functional or dysfunctional families, murder and violence, almost certainly uh, sexual anarchy amongst many of the very young taking part, theft at a shocking scale, a, an amazing outbreak of public covetousness. Of course, most people, as we have seen, are dismayed by what has happened. You don't have to be a Christian to be appalled or indeed to do something about it. Nevertheless, to be Christian in our society is becoming increasingly countercultural, is it not? We are challenging many of the assumptions that are taken for granted in our society. And our challenge, therefore, does have some similarities with the Thessalonians. Paul knew that their countercultural stance, taking a stand against the authorities of uh, pagan religion and uh, tyrannical political uh, authorities, refusing to worship. Uh, idols or, or Caesar, for instance, they knew that this would attract persecution. So how they survived is very important for us to learn 
and also uh, for our brothers and sisters experiencing similar things around the world. How are we to survive? How are we to, to live this countercultural life? How can we, as Christians, set such an example? At the end of this service, we're going to be challenged to, to carry a light, some, if we brought a torch with us, a physical light, uh, back home with us as a sign that we will stand for the light and for truth, for moral values that are Christian. Uh, how are we to do that uh, as uh, perhaps things become even worse than they are at the moment? Who knows? Well, let me just give you uh, one or two things from this uh, short chapter uh, as I draw to a close. How are we to survive? How did they survive? How will we? Well, look, for instance, at verse uh, 13 of chapter 2, just looking back for a moment uh, there. And I talked about this last, uh, last week. In, in chapter 2, he says, We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. As I said last week and preaching on chapter 2, we must, as Paul urges the Thessalonians to do, we must stand for, firm for truth and we must reject lies. We must be ready, as Pete very um, persuasively preached this morning in talking about Joseph's brave stand in resisting temptation in Potiphar's household. We must be ready to proclaim and live for the truth that marks our lives. That means resisting temptation and resisting the devil's snares. We reject God's word in favor of the word of man or the good of opinion of man at our peril and at our nation's peril. We must stand firm for truth. Secondly, we must recognize the reality of the spiritual battle. Uh, that this is, it is a spiritual battle and as we, as we stand for truth we will attract uh, the enemy's attention. Um, I suppose um, in, in chapter 3 the kind of assumption behind what, m much of what Paul is writing is an expectation that these young believers brought into the Christian community, brought into discipleship of Christ will now be facing problems that they didn't face before. That they will have difficulty. One lady in the church came up to me this week. She's been a, a widow for many years and it's been struggle for her. It's been tough for her to keep going. And unprompted she said to me, it, these were her exact words, she said, only as I look back now can I see God's hand in my suffering. Only as I look back now can I see God's hand in it. And it's that kind of settled faith in the midst of the battle that Timothy told Paul he found in Thessalonica. I've, he comes back to Corinth and he says, I think they are standing firm. I think they do have a settled face. They may not have been a Christian very long. They are suffering, but they're holding on. The Living Bible has an interesting paraphrase for the end of verse 3 of chapter 3. It says, but of course you know that such troubles are part of God's plan for us as Christians. But of course you know that such troubles are part of God's plan for us as Christians. Nobody involved in pastoral work here or in the prayer ministry team that will be available here at the end of the service or indeed anyone caring for a fellow believer going through hard times. No one would pretend for a moment that believing uh, believing that, that this is part of God's purposes for us, no one would pretend that that's easy. 
Of course not. It's very difficult to believe that in the midst of the Troubles. Exactly the point Pete was trying to make this morning. It was remarkable for Joseph, when, who appeared to have been abandoned by God in Potiphar's house, a slave. And then even when things go better in the household, he eventually gets thrown into prison even though he's done nothing wrong. He hung on to God, even though it, was, it must have felt to him as if God had abandoned him. No one's suggesting that it's easy, but through that experience of suffering, great lessons come. Don't think it's easy, but if we hang on, trusting in the Lord Jesus, we will get through it, and we will make sense of it. And that was what this testimony of this dear lady was to me this week here in St. Andrews. The Thessalonian Christians hung on amidst persecution. Uh, they managed to do it. Those who are being persecuted in all those countries I listed, perhaps for many of them it is really dark days, but many of them are hanging on and they will see God's hand in their lives. We have an enemy, both attacking us and tempting us to give up. It will always be thus. We should recognize the reality of the spiritual battle, but hang on. Thirdly, we must not forget the resource that we have in the Christian family. We must not forget the resource we have in the Christian family. It never ceases to amaze me to meet people who call themselves Christians and say they don't need their local church. They don't need the company of other Christians around them. I'll do it on my own. I just don't believe it. I just don't believe it. I don't believe that people can survive on their own. Not amidst persecution and suffering. People give up. We need the resource of the Christian family. What a joy it must have been for the Thessalonians when Timothy rode into town. What a glorious moment. I mean, I don't know whether they knew he was coming. The communications are pretty basic in those days. And then he arrives, perhaps on a Sunday morning, perhaps at the midweek prayer meeting. Maybe there weren't more than, I don't know, 30 or 40 of them perhaps. How many were meeting there? Who knows? Suddenly Timothy comes from Corinth. Paul's asked me to come and find out how you're getting on. He's brought a message for you to keep going. He loves you. He cares for you. He's praying for you. How strengthened and encouraged they must have been by that visit. What a resource for them, Paul and Timothy, his disciple, were. And many of us uh, in the summer will be on camps or mission trips or, or beach missions or house parties the 20 of our young people have gone off to Soul Survivor today. Others have came back from Keswick I was talking to last week. Others have been to New Wine. Others have been to Focus or all sorts of other uh, wonderful gatherings of Christians. Different youth camps, cipher camps, scripture union camps. What a great resource for us the Christian family is. What a great resource it is for us. And we should use it. Paul's letters were a great help to the Thessalonians how much, how thrill, thrilling it must have been to have Timothy come and point them to those letters and that truth. So let's not neglect and thank God for the resource of the local church. And when we think about these persecuted brothers and sisters, often tiny groups of them gather together. I, if they were here to witness, I bet you that they would tell you that the greatest strength they draw, apart from the strength from God's word and from his Holy Spirit, is the fellowship of the believers around them. It is crucial. Let's not forget the resource we have in the Christian family. And lastly, we must stand firm. When all is said and done, we must stand firm. 
Look at, um, at verse 8. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you? For we, for we know that you are standing firm in the Lord. Sometimes in the Christian life it is necessary just to stand firm. Sometimes we can do not, not much more than stand firm. Peter's first letter, uh, 1 Peter, like much of the New Testament, is written in the context of urging Christians to hang on in the face of persecution and suffering. And I was very touched after last week's evening service, having a conversation with um, David Cranston, who's really a member of Kidlington Baptist Church, but quite often comes to us here for, for an evening service. David Cranston was a, a good lifelong friend of John Stott, great Christian teacher, preacher, writer, who died a few weeks ago, who I mentioned last week. And David told me after the sermon uh, last week that he went to visit John for the last time, about two or three weeks before he died. And uh, he read uh, the first part of, uh, of 1 Peter, the opening verses of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, which is about the resurrection hope and uh, the hope we have in Christ. And, and John was very frail and uh, uh, clearly hanging on to the hope of resurrection in the midst of his personal suffering and, his, uh, and, and, and the process of dying. He was very weak, but David said that Uncle John, as everybody called him, was still able, even in this uh, enfeebled state, to deliver a sermon. Perhaps it was the last sermon that he ever preached, and it was preached to David. And he pointed out to David that every chapter of 1 Peter is about suffering and assumes the existence of suffering in the Christian life. And he talked about uh, the triumph over suffering that there is in Christ through resurrection and through the reality of a relationship with Christ. And he pointed to the climax of the book, really, which is in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 and 9. I think it's rather thrilling that on his deathbed, really, John was able uh, to still urge uh, a, a fellow uh, believer in this way. It says this, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. John Stott certainly stood firm right into his 91st year. And now, as uh, Paul puts it here in verse 13, he is blameless and holy in the presence of, God, of his God and Father. May it be so for all of us, whatever life throws at us in the future. Amen.